Sure. Good morning, saints. Woo, we got a couple of saints in here this morning. You know why we call you saints? Do you know the biblical definition of a saint? Do you know the three angels' message? All right, well, let's go to the book of Revelation. And uh, after this, we will pray. First, we have to establish that you are a saint. All right, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Revelation 14, verse 12 says, Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How many of you strive with all of your effort, not your merit-earning effort, but all of your, your effort to keep the commandments of God? And how many of you exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, so that means that you are a biblical what? Okay, so not just the two of you can answer this morning. Good morning, saints. All right, very nice. Boy, y'all are easily trained too. Thank you. Thank you for participating. It is a joy and a privilege to be here with you. I want to introduce my family to you. So they're going to put a slide up there and uh, you will be able to know our family. So... Let's see, this little pointer is not going to reflect on that screen. We're going to go from your left to your right. On the far left is Brandon. Brandon works full-time at Home Depot. He is in charge of the millwork section in uh, one of the stores there in Chattanooga. Very proud of all that he has accomplished. At this point in his life, he has this massive beard that I'm very jealous of because I can't grow a beard other than a few splotches of hair on my face. Uh, Daniel is the one to Brandon's left. He's in the back there. Daniel is a welder. He also lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or in Ultawa, Tennessee, and uh, has been a welder now for probably seven years, loves what he's doing, has plans to become a mechanical engineer. And then uh, the first daughter you see is my wife. No, that's, she's not my daughter. That is my wife, Melanie. And Melanie owns a chicken farm in central Florida, and maybe I'll tell you more about that this week. Uh, the young man in the back, behind to Melanie's left, all the way in the back, that is Danny. He's our oldest. He's 28, and he just graduated from Southern Adventist University. Very proud of him, and he's going to be a salesman, so... Uh, that's what he wants to do. He, right now, he could, he could sell ice to an Eskimo living in an igloo. But, uh, so he, he should do well. The young man to his left is me. Yep, that's me. The young lady in front of me is our daughter, Samantha. Samantha's 18. She has plans to go to either the University of Florida in Gainesville or the University of St. Petersburg, Florida to become a veterinary technician. And then to her left is Jason. Jason got married May a year ago. He and his bride just bought a house in uh, Hickson, Tennessee. They are both employed, doing very well. Uh, Jason is a nurse. And so we praise the Lord for our family. And we are about, the, the time is getting very near that we are going to adopt our niece. And so we're very excited about that. Um, to have another youngin in the house. I wanted like a dozen, but uh, my wife would have nothing of that. Um, the Bible says that your quiver is not full until you have 12 arrows in it. 
And so I wanted 12. I mean, why not? Well, she had many reasons. And uh, of course, you know, that's not really all my decision, is it? So let's pray together. Um, we want the Spirit of God to help us to understand the Word of God so that we can know Jesus better. Our goal in these morning meetings is to know Jesus better, and we're doing that through the eyes and the letter of John the Beloved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have gathered here at camp meeting. Some of us are in this room some of us are watching on channel 90-something in our hotel room. Some of us are at home because we weren't yet ready to come out and, and, and be a part of a, a major group of people yet because of what has happened in the recent past. Father, no matter where we are, no matter where our computer is, maybe we're at the kitchen table, Maybe we're sitting up in bed and have a laptop on our lap. We are here to worship you. Time and space for you is instantaneous. And so all of us are very grateful this morning to be able to claim the promise that where two or more are gathered together, there you will be. It's wonderful to be able to bask in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We worship you, we love you, and we want to know more about Jesus today. This we pray in his name, amen. amen. So on uh, Thursday evening last week, I was driving home I had gone to get, look at there, there's something on the floor that says Pastor Scott Moore. Maybe it's a lactose intolerant pill or something. Talked about milk yesterday. Bless your hearts. Several of you came up and uh, not only in here, but also in other places on campus and talked to me about milk yesterday. Um, and I appreciate that. I'm hoping that today you will talk to me more about the content of not milk, but of how you came to know Jesus as more of a personal friend today. And of course, if milk was the way you came to know Jesus, praise the Lord for that, right? I mean, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Thursday evening, I was driving back. I had gone to pick up some chicken food for my wife's farm. And I had 12,000 pounds of chicken food in a bulk, in bulk bags, so that would be six bulk bags on the back of my trailer. And I just exited I-95 South onto I-10 West, and it had started raining. And so um, I'm watching in front of me, being very diligent by the grace of God to pay attention. It had just started raining. I turned my wipers on, and there's this truck driver that turns his right turn signal on. I'm in the lane to the right of that truck driver. Oh, no. And so I pushed on the brakes. I didn't just barely push on the brakes. I had both feet on the brakes. I was standing up. My back was arched. I was gripping the steering wheel, and he just kept coming. And so I scooted over, 
And he came over more and I scooted over and he came over more and I scooted over more and he came over more and I scooted over more. And when I hit the concrete wall, I bounced into his trailer and I hit the concrete wall and I bounced into his trailer. And by the time it was all done, he couldn't go forward or backwards because I was smushed in between the wall. This was last Thursday night, in between the wall and his trailer. You ever been run over by an 18-wheeler? I'm here to live and tell about it. Hallelujah. I was terrified. But I was grateful. I was grateful because my airbags didn't go off. I was grateful because I, I turned my, my little dash. Interestingly enough, my steering wheel at that point was completely upside down and my wheels were still straight. I don't know how that happened, but they're going to fix that. They tell me they're going to repair that. I told the Lord Jesus, thank you for keeping me safe. I called my wife. I'm okay. I've been in an accident. She was not, she didn't like bark like a chicken or anything, even though she has lots of them. Uh, but you know, there's, there's some concern there. My wheels were still inflated. I the upside-down steering wheel, I hit those buttons that tell you what the tire pressure is. They were all still inflated. I hit the button that took me to what uh, the temperature was and my transmission and my, my oil. You say oil or you say oil down here, up here? Oil. Somebody's a teacher. Oil. Um, and all of those were good. And so I was like, Lord, I think I can still drive this thing home. I think I can. I was hoping, because I was still about two hours away from home, and mercy. I didn't want to pay for that tow bill, although I'm sure that company that, that he was driving for would pay for it, but I just wanted to get home. I was safe, even though I'd been through a very traumatic experience. I was safe, and I was going home. You know, with Jesus, no matter what happens in our lives, we are safe. And we are going home. And that's going to be a good place. We are, I think I have a second picture of my family to show you. Uh, we were bowling that night. Melanie took the picture. I think that was the same weekend. That was uh, over a Christmas a couple of years ago. Man, all of my boys have beards now. Like, why can't I grow one? But anyway, we are going to look at how the Lord Jesus takes care of the problem of quality. Remember, John's burden. John is writing. I was told by my church secretary who watched yesterday morning that I should probably move slower on the platform because I went off the screen numerous times on the live stream. So either that or whoo -hoo, speed up. I'm told, for the camera people, I'm told that if you will watch the direction of my toes, you will know that that's the direction I'm going next. That's what they tell me at church. We are looking today at how Jesus 
can reclaim the quality of your life. And we are going to find that Jesus does this at his very first miracle in Cana of Galilee. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus is going to take care of the problem of quality. John is writing this gospel at the end of his life, and he is writing it for the purpose. You're in John 2. Go to the end of John. Keep your finger there in John chapter 2, and you're going to go to John 20, verse 30. John 20 and verse 30. This, this is where John tells us why he wrote what is contained in the gospel of John. John 20, verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John is writing this gospel for the purpose of telling you uh, his experience with Jesus so that you can know Jesus. Now, at this point, is Jesus still in the flesh walking on earth at this point when John is writing this? Okay, so let's clarify the question. Is Jesus still walking on earth in the flesh at the time that John is writing this? He is not. Jesus has ascended to heaven. That happened 40 days after his resurrection. Man, that's a whole fun study about how Jesus gets crowned king, but that's neither here nor there for this morning worship. John is writing after he has experienced three and a half years with Jesus. And his burden is to write in such a way that you can know who Jesus is is by the time you finish reading John's letter. John wants people who didn't eat with Jesus, people who didn't walk behind Jesus, individuals that didn't hear Jesus say, hey, anybody got one of those small twigs? I've got something stuck in my tooth. Jesus was a real person, you know. Here, John chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Do you believe that Jesus loved his mother? Oh, absolutely. Like, who doesn't love their mama, right? There's the backdrop and the setting to this chapter is this. Jesus had already at this point called, we're going to a slide, Jesus had already called five disciples, John Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel to be his disciples. By the time they are going to the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, those five disciples have been called. Now, Nathaniel is from Cana of Galilee, so Nathaniel is going home. There is a good chance that Nathaniel is related to the individual that is going to get married. Cana is approximately four miles from Nazareth. And this is also the place where the nobleman's son will be healed later on in the book of John. Jesus was called, John chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. 
So Jesus at this point is known to have disciples. And why do you think that Jesus would be called to this wedding? It's okay to talk to me. Somebody asked me at lunch yesterday, by the way, I'm thoroughly enjoying just popping into your conversations at your tables during the mealtime. I'm not so much of a shy person, so I just ask, can I sit here? And uh, either you're so gracious, you say, sure, or um, maybe you're just so Christian that you're like, okay, if we have to, but uh, thank you for letting me eat with you. Jesus is going to this wedding Because Jesus is going to see his mama. Jesus has not seen his mama now for about two months. You see, this is, go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and look at verse 29. John 1 and verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I did not know him, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. Jump down to verse 33. And I did not know him. He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is the which is baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is after the baptism of Jesus. This, this uh, wedding feast in Canaan takes place after the baptism of Jesus. How long did Jesus go into the wilderness for? Go into the wilderness. How long was Jesus in the wilderness after he was driven there by the Spirit? And another gospel writer would say, after he was led there by the Spirit. How long was he there? 40 days. And then you figure he has to walk back and maybe he takes a bath or something. I don't know. But Jesus has been removed from his mama now for probably about two months. Any of you miss your mama when you don't get to see her? Like my dad died this past January and I miss my daddy. I miss that man like nobody's business. You're in John chapter 2. Let me just make sure we're all caught up to speed here on our slide. Marriages in the time of Jesus, let's describe that a little bit. It was usually held in the home of the groom. Now, for those of you that have daughters that you have paid buku money for, for them to get hitched to some uh, insubordinate, um, not worth it um, You just can't believe she chose that guy. No, I'm just kidding. Typically, by the time they get married, you you like them. But it is the groom's responsibility to meet every need for the wedding. This would have kept many of you and will keep me out of debt if this was still practiced. Right? I'm going to pay my daughter to elope is what I'm going to do. The marriage was held in the home of the groom. The groom's responsibility was to meet every need for the wedding. That's going to become very important when we talk about another wedding near the end of this morning's study, and it is the groom's responsibility to make sure that all the details were taken care of. Now, Jesus' mom was at the wedding feast in Cana. 
Mary had not seen Jesus for about two months, and he goes to celebrate in this festal occasion of a marriage. My friends, Jesus was not a stick in the mud kind of person. Jesus was not a party pooper. Jesus was somebody that enjoyed having a good time. Jesus enjoyed spending time with people that he knew, and he enjoyed spending time with people that he was getting to know. Jesus loved interaction with other people. And so Jesus is going to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and his mama is going to be there. How much better does it get? And his disciples are with him. Jesus loves being with people, and Jesus loves being with you. Jesus goes to this wedding feast for the purpose of showing his sympathy to humanity. Of course, Jesus is God in the flesh. That would be, you're very close there. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh, John chapter 1 verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This would be plain John. That was pretty cool in last night's presentation, wasn't it? He said, this is plain, John. I will use that more than just this morning in the future. So thank you, uh, Dr. McClafferty. Thank you for that. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus goes to this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. How many of you enjoy going to weddings? Do you enjoy going to weddings? Yeah, why? Tell me why you enjoy going to weddings. All right, it's a happy occasion. It's what? To see your family and friends, okay. There's a lot of food, heard that. Unfortunately, at the father of the bride's expense, I mean, if we go back to old times, it'd be the groom's daddy that took care. Boy, I'd be much poorer. I better be quiet. I've got four boys and one girl. Why do you enjoy going to weddings? Love? All right. Uh, for those of you that are married, you go to a wedding with your wife, uh, not your own, but your own wife, that's what I meant, not your own wedding. You go to a wedding, and there's that beautiful bride, and there's that handsome groom, and, and your wife reaches over and grabs your hand, and you're just like, oh, that's so sweet. And then because she grabbed her hand, you start rubbing her hand, and you're like, oh, that's so nice. Y'all are grinning from ear to absolute ear. You know what I'm talking about. Weddings are just occasions that bring out the best in people. Jesus is at a wedding because he loves being with people. And Jesus has a desire to make that wedding the best that it can be. This is what Christians do, you know. When Christians are involved in a, a project or a, a, a church ministry, we do things and we do it to the best of our ability because we are not doing it for ourselves. We are doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are doing it because there is a God that we serve that said, if you do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so when we do something for the Lord, like, you know, take care of those kids and create a roll, 
You know, I have two churches, and it's hard in one church to find somebody to take care of kids in cradle roll. And in the other church, lots of people love taking care of kids in cradle roll. One of my churches says, you know, we did that years ago. By the way, some of my church members are watching, so I have to be careful what I say, you know what I mean? In one of my churches, it's hard to get people in credit roll. They say, you know, I did that before I retired. Now I'm retired. Hmm. The Lord's working on their hearts, though. Some people starting to come out of the woodwork. All those knots that were in the woodwork just starting to pop out. That's real nice. Jesus wants this wedding to be the best that it could be. He's invited to the wedding, and his disciples get to go with him. Verse 3 says this, John chapter 2, verse 3, and when they wanted wine, that doesn't mean that they had a desire to have more wine. It means that when the wine ran out, when they wanted wine, the mother of, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. The wine had run out. Why does Mary ask Jesus, or why does Mary tell Jesus that there's no wine? What is her expectation? That he will provide. All right. Anyone else? That he'll work a miracle. Anyone else? That he would reveal himself as the Messiah. Someone else? Oh, there's a mother right there. Jesus has always done what his mama has asked him to do. Jesus has obeyed his mother his entire life. Jesus is a faithful son. And when Mary, now allow us to put on our spiritual imaginations, you know, we have been told by the pen of inspiration that it is okay for us to use our imagination when we are reading scriptures so that scripture will become alive for us. Some of you are going to say, hey, where's that quote? The answer is IDK. I don't know, but it's in there. Look it up. You have the same search engines that I have access to. Mary had always been able to ask Jesus to do something. Picture this. Let's say that Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and the other kids are sitting down to eat maybe lunch. Maybe that was the meal that, that they were able to get all of their in, uh, family together to have lunch. And they sit down on the bench at the table and the bench squeaks. And Mary, who's just the same as most, most other mamas, is like, oh, we sure do need that fix, Joseph. And, uh, you know, I've heard that squeak once before, and I didn't mention it, but you think we could take care? I'm sure she spoke with a southern accent too, by the way. You think we could get that taken care of? And the next time they get together, the next day for lunch, they all sit down and, and uh, the kids sit down on their side and mom and dad are sitting down on their side and no squeak. No squeaking. Mary looks over at Joseph with that twinkle in her eye and she says, oh, thank you so much, Joe, for taking care of that for us. And she said, he says, sweetheart, I wish I could take credit for that. But I saw, I saw Jesus' eyes sort of twinkle 
when you asked me to fix that yesterday. And after we ate and it all cleaned up and some of us were taking naps and others were outside playing, I saw Jesus pick up that bench and take it to the workshop. And I saw him, I I knew what he was going to do. And I knew that when he came back, it was going to be quiet. And then she looks at Jesus and she says, thank you, Jesus. I can imagine other times Mary is just in the kitchen and she's just working, 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 working. You know, that's what moms do, right? Moms never stop working. Dads come home from work and they plop down and they say, give me 15 minutes. And moms are like, what? 15 minutes? I haven't had 15 seconds today. That's what they think, but they don't share it with you because moms love papas too. So she's working, 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 and maybe they're going to have people over for lunch, and, and she just she doesn't have enough bread made yet, and Jesus walks in, and he sees her running all over the place, and he's like, hey, Mom, what can I do to help? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So grateful. Jesus was always there. Jesus, up to this point, according to Scripture, look at John chapter 2 and verse 11. John 2 verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on him. This is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. We have no scriptural evidence that prior to this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee that Jesus had performed any miracles. That means that when Mary looks at Jesus and says, they don't have any more wine, she is not expecting Jesus to perform a miracle because to date, Jesus had not performed a miracle. She just simply expects that this same young man who she knows is the promised Messiah, who who she heard from the prophet and prophetess that were there dedicating Jesus at the temple, she heard that a sword would pierce her own heart because of this child. The angel had come to her and said uh, that One will be born of you that is to sit on David's throne. She knew all of this, yet to this point, Jesus had never performed a miracle, so she just had come to so depend on Jesus. She doesn't even care, you know. Here's the the initial reaction, right? Jesus walks into wherever Mary is running around. By the way, Mary is there because she's related and she's in charge of part of the feast. And she's running around and she sees Jesus. She runs up, kisses him on one cheek, kisses him on the other cheek, gives him a hug, says, whew, maybe you need to take a bath. I don't know what else she said to him. But she says, I'm so glad you are here because they're out of juice. She knows that Jesus is going to take care of this. Even if Jesus has to go pick some grapes in season or out of season, if he has to stomp on them with his own bare feet, if he has to make the, if he has to go make it from grape juice paste, that Jesus is going to take care of this because he has always taken care of situations, not miraculously, 
but he's taken care of them. And so she simply shares from her heart that they, they have run out of wine. Mary simply, back to our slide now, presents the issue of no more wine being available and expects that Jesus will do as he has always been able to do. He will come up with a solution. Again, to this point, Jesus had not done a miracle, so she couldn't have been asking for that. John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman... What have I to do with you? Now, you know, in the South, when somebody says, woman, you're laughing, but if somebody said that to you, you wouldn't be laughing, would you? You'd be like, whoops, or bam. I went to the, young, uh, the youth program yesterday morning, and um, pastor speaking there, Justin Kim, he talked a story, a story, told a story about an eagle that would go, wha-bam, and knock the, the baby out of the nest. But you would be like, wha-bam, don't you call me woman? That was a term of endearment in the days of Jesus. He is, he is replying to his mama. He is not speaking disrespectfully to his mama. Jesus, by the way, uses that same term when he's talking to that lady that had been caught in adultery. Woman? Where are those thine accusers? Jesus is using this as a term of endearment, as would anyone else in the day of Jesus. What have I to do with you? Jesus is saying, Mom, you're in charge of this. This is, this is your project. And she's thinking to herself, every other project I have had, you have helped me with, except for the past 60 days. I'm so glad you showed up today. Verse 4 continues. Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. So Mary does have an expectation that somehow Jesus is going to reveal to those at this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee that he is the Messiah. You remember, Jesus does not admit that his time has come until Jesus is about to be betrayed. And so Jesus here says, Mom, this is your project, and it is not time for me to reveal myself. Now, we know that Mary fully expected Jesus to do something because after she says this, look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says for you to do, just get it done. She knew it was going to be taken care of because she believed in the one that had never let her down before. She believed that Jesus was going to be the obedient, honor your father and mother son, and that this was going to be taken care of. Whatever he says to you, just go ahead and do it. The fact that Mary is asking for help with the juice tells us that it was her position to be in charge of the juice. The ruler, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. The governor of the feast never even knew that they were out of wine. Like Mary is in charge of this and Mary's reputation is going to be sullied if they really, truly don't have wine to fill in the gap that is going to take place. So verse six reads like this. And there were set there six 
water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. So there's six water pots of stone, each held two or three firkins of water. The water is used for the ritual washings of the Jews. The water is also used for washing your hands, the utensils, and notice this, the feet of guests at the end of this morning's study. We're going to see Jesus use water again out of, one of, out of a stone jar for the purpose of cleansing the disciples. Lots of, of, of John is coming out here. The water was a cleansing agent. Now, Jesus here asks them to fill up those six water pots. And if you do the math, that means that, that Jesus wanted them to, to get 60 or 70, rather, to 120 gallons of water. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the what? They filled them up to the brim. Let's go to our slide. Have you ever, when you're at a wedding and uh, they bring out that sparkling Martinelli grape juice, you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe Thanksgiving, people buy that Martinelli grape juice or white grape juice. You're staring at it like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what Martinelli's sparkling grape juice is? Yeah, you have that on special occasions, and they usually only give you about this much in that glass that's this tall. Like, I don't get that. Buy more. (laughs) Don't run out. Buy more. My kids would take that Martinelli sparkling grape juice when we get those cups for Thanksgiving that look like wine goblets, and uh, they'd say, what's a special occasion? And we're like, it's Thanksgiving. What's a special occasion? It's Sabbath afternoon. What's a special occasion? It's a day that ends in Y. We like that stuff. And they'll take that stuff and they'll pour it in that cup and they'll pour it, pour it, pour it until the fizz starts popping up over the top and they pour it until the surface tension. There's like this oval on top. You ever pour a drink so much that it looks like there's this, the surface tension is the only thing keeping it in the cup and then they'll lean over and suck some of it out. And of course, it's carbonated and that just creates a whole new feeling inside. And so uh, Jesus said, fill up these water pots to the brim. Jesus wanted there to be no doubt. The servants had taken the water pots And if you're going to drink out of something, what are you going to do before you fill it up with the drink? Thank you. One person, I'm coming to your house for fellowship meal. Coming to your house. You're going to clean it. And then after they uh, clean it, they fill it to the top. Got that surface tension stuff going on. This is important because the way that grape juice was stored in the time of Jesus is that they would make a paste out of the mushed grapes. They would dehydrate that paste, and then they would store it in a cool, dry place. And when in out-of-grape season, if they wanted some grape juice, they would take that grape paste, the same as you and I would do, only we go to the frozen section of the grocery store, and we get grape juice concentrate, then we pour it in our pitcher, and then we get three cups of cold water, or three of the jugs uh, of cold water. You know what I'm talking about. She's over shaking her head, yes. I know exactly. Get on with the sermon, she says. We know what you're talking about. 
So they would uh, take that paste and they would put it into the water and then they would stir it and stir it and stir it until it had completely colored the water and it would probably taste like watered-down grape juice. So Jesus wanted there to be no doubt that there was nothing, nothing could have been added to those water pots to make that grape juice. All the servants had done at this point is put what in those stone water pots? All they'd put in there is water. There's no more room in this jar for the grape paste. Verse 8 says this, And Jesus said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. So Jesus says, Get some of that juice and take it to the governor of the feast. Verse 9 says, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he did not know where it had come from, but knew the servants which drew the, but the servants which drew the water out knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Verse 10, and said unto him, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. A lot of individuals will say, you know, Jesus, I can drink wine because Jesus made wine at the feast. It was his first miracle was to make wine. So that's why I can drink wine. The, the Bible says in Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not Wise. Do you realize that there are no positive statements in Scripture about fermented grapes? No positive statements. Scripture describes the fermented, fermented grapes or grape juice. Or By the way, if they were going to ferment something in the time of Jesus, the most fermentation that they could create because of the process that they used was the alcoholic content of a very mild beer. And so you would have to drink quite a bit of that in order to get drunk. So the question here is, did Jesus make fresh grape juice or did Jesus make wine? Well, notice what the ruler of the feast says. Verse 10, he says, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine, whether that's wine that makes you drunk or whether that's just fresh grape juice, neither here nor there at this moment. And when men have well drunk then that which is worse. So the question here again, is this fermented or is it not? Well, if you were going to impress people, have you ever, um, oh, maybe we'll just take it to a fellowship meal setting. You ever eaten too much at fellowship meal? You're laughing, that probably means you have. You ever had food coma after fellowship meal? You know, fellowship meal is like a carbohydrate feast. Somebody need to make something other than pasta at fellowship meal. You know what I'm saying? Well, let's suppose that you go to a wedding and they feed you. And it's a good meal. 
and they give you something to drink, and boy, you just drink it, and it's good stuff, and, and then they come out with the cake, and you're like, oh, man, can I stomach it? And then after the cake, you want something to wash it down with, and you're like, oh, I don't have any room for anything else. And so you get just a little bit of juice or a little bit of something to wash it down. Here's the situation. The meal has been served. People have drunk a lot of grape juice, non-fermented, by the way. And here they are now needing more. And so Jesus makes that, and the governor of the feast is upset. He is upset because the bridegroom has broken tradition. The tradition was the good is served initially, and then the poorer or the less concentrated is served later. You broke tradition, so the governor of the feast is not excited about the bridegroom's decision. By the way, it wasn't even the bridegroom that had decided this. It was the fact that Jesus comes along and makes something the best that it could ever have been. The bridegroom is told by the governor of that feast, this is your responsibility. All of the shame of this good juice being later and the bad juice being first is on you. It's almost as if he was saying to him, you are selfish. You save the best for last because you know that nobody else is able to even get another swallow or a bite of cake in them, so you save the best so that you can keep it for you. The the governor of the feast is removing himself from the stigma of the negativity of what is going to fall out from this uh, breaking of tradition. Let's go to our slide here. Was the, the water that Jesus changed into wine, was it alcoholic? 1 Corinthians 3, 17 and 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your temples are of the Holy Spirit, or temple, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, and you are not your own? Isaiah 65, 8 says, thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it, Jesus made fresh, exquisite tasting grape juice, the best that anyone had ever had. The governor wanted the bridegroom to know that his breaking with tradition was going to be his responsibility, that it would be on him, basically saying, you will bear the reproach for this breach in tradition. This is what I want to know. If well drunk means off your rocker, uh, out of your mind because of the alcoholic content and what you have been drinking, how would the governor and the guests know that this juice was better than the juice they drank at the beginning? If they were drunk, would they have been able to taste the difference? Okay, confession is good for the soul. You do not have to participate. Anyone else out there ever been drunk before? And when you get drunk, you don't care what it tastes like later. I mean, you just want more. The the taste doesn't even come into, just as long as it burns, right? Just as long as it burns when it goes down. 
You don't even care. So if it was alcoholic beverage and they were well drunk, meaning they were drunk, then how would they know that the second set of wine tasted better than the first? They wouldn't have if they had been drunk. Jesus made the situation of sadness, no more wine, into a season for rejoicing. Jesus had saved the best for last. This miracle provided the early disciples with the first visible evidence of Jesus' divine power. This miracle fortified the disciples against the unbelief of the Jewish um, individuals. Number three, this miracle provided the disciples with their first opportunity to testify of their newfound faith. This miracle honored Mary's trust in Jesus. This miracle expresses the sympathetic interest of Jesus in human happiness, Jesus cares whether you are happy or not. Jesus cares about you. Jesus begins his ministry in John chapter 1. We've already read that part where Jesus begins his ministry and he is baptized by water. Jesus then, his first miracle is turning water into wine or grape juice. When Jesus concludes his ministry, Jesus concludes his ministry by washing the disciples' feet, and Jesus washes the disciples' feet with water that comes out of a stone pot that was designed for the purpose of cleansing people. Jesus begins his ministry with water and juice. Jesus ends his ministry with water and, go with me, to John 19, 34. John chapter 19 and verse 34. Remember, John wants you to know Jesus better. And uh, I believe that Jesus loves grape juice. John 19, we are going to verse 34. When Jesus had already died, that's verse 33, they did not break his legs, now 34, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out, what? Two things. Water and blood. Jesus begins his ministry with water, and what will later become the symbolism of his blood or wine, and he ends his ministry on earth in the exact same way. Now, look at Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So you're going back to Gospels. We're going to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14, verses 24 and 25. Mark 14, verse 24 and 25. Jesus at the Lord's Supper says this in Mark 14, 24. He says, and he said unto them, this is the blood of the New Testament, my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Truly I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. The reality for Jesus who loves the taste of fresh grape juice is that he has not tasted fresh grape juice since the night he was betrayed. Now, Jesus, who loves grape juice, is looking forward to the opportunity of drinking grape juice with you at another feast. 
Turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, last book of the whole Bible, probably one of the two easiest books to find in Scripture, the other being Genesis. Revelation 19 and verse 5. The Bible says in Revelation 19 and verse 5, and a voice, Revelation 19 and verse 5, and a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 9, and he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. John the Beloved, who writes plain John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation says, he was recalling in his own mind that there is going to be another wedding feast. Oh, Lord Jesus, I remember. Can't you just imagine his home, his mind is just going 90 miles an hour as he's reliving that marriage feast in Cana of Galilee where Jesus begins his ministry. And now here Jesus is promising him that there's going to be another wedding feast. And at that wedding feast, there is going to be a, a, a meal and that meal is going to be served and everyone is going to say, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reign that John is just, his, his uh, I don't know what they wrote with, but whatever he's writing with and whatever he's writing on is probably smoking he's going so fast. He is excited that there's going to be another wedding feast and every detail of the feast will be taken care of by the bridegroom. Amen. Every detail, right down to the nameplate that is on the setting where you will be seated. It's all there. You're on the guest list. I can just imagine, you ever been working out in the field or you're working out in the hot sun, maybe doing some gardening and you get real, real thirsty and you, you ask somebody to bring you a cup of lemonade or maybe some water and they bring it out to you and you take your first sip and you just feel it. You feel that water start going down your, your esophagus and then it coats the inside of your stomach and you just feel, you're like, that's good stuff. You ever have that happen? Okay, good. I'm not the only one that waits too long to get a drink of water. I can imagine that Jesus is gonna be there at that wedding feast. And Jesus is gonna say, he's gonna raise this cup and he's gonna say, I wanna make a toast. I wanna make a toast to God the Father, to God the Holy Spirit. And if I could so humbly just include myself in that, that toast as well. And all of you, we want to toast you because you made the decision to wear the righteousness that I provided for you. You stopped trying to work your way to heaven and you depended on me to provide you with righteousness. Let me just pause right here. God is not opposed to your effort in salvation. God is not opposed to you trying to do things right. God is opposed to you claiming, he's not opposed to your 
effort. God is opposed to you claiming, claiming that you have earned salvation. Your works don't get you there. It's the righteousness of Jesus and his works that get us there. That's righteousness by faith. And so Jesus is standing there at this wedding feast and he holds up this cup and he, he toasts the redeemed. He toasts the Godhead. He toasts the angelic hosts. And then picture with me, if you will, Jesus taking that cup and putting it to his lips. Prior to that, saying, drink all of it. And he takes one huge gulp. And you can see the expression on his face as that cool liquid goes down his esophagus and coats the inside of his stomach. And he says, ah. You see, Jesus is anticipating a marriage. And Jesus is anticipating you being at that marriage. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, probably my favorite, says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. My friends, understand that God did not send Jesus into this world to condemn you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You stand this morning before God as an individual that has been saved. You don't have to question it. You just have to believe it. Oh, but pastor, what happens if I slip up and I say that word? It is not the occasional deed or misdeed that determines the future of your life. It is the constant, consistent, daily living with Jesus that changes you. And whatever deficit you may have in your own mind about your righteousness it has already been made up in the life of Jesus Christ. I'm not encouraging you to live like the devil and expect to be saved. Because when Jesus comes into your life, you are motivated internally by the presence of Jesus to live your life differently. And you can take no credit for that either. Jesus takes a wedding where Mary is just absolutely beside herself. The guests don't even know they're out of juice. And Jesus takes that moment of sadness for Mary and he turns it into a moment of gladness, not only for her, but also for the bridegroom, for the bride, for the guests, and for every other individual that will come to have faith in Jesus because he's the one that turned water into wine. When Jesus goes back to Cana of Galilee, the whispering, the newspaper probably reads, Jesus of Nazareth, water into wine, he's back, what's next? Jesus does this miracle because he wants you to understand. John shares it with us because he wants us to understand that Jesus is all about bringing happiness and joy into your life. Jesus wants you to be happy. Some people come to camp meeting and they're depressed. My friends, Jesus wants you to be happy. 
It's not that you can just pull a blanket over somebody and then pull it off and say whatever magic word you want to say and then the depression is gone. My friends, it is time for us to focus on Jesus to the point where Jesus' life is all that we see. It's all that we hear. Jesus wants you to be happy. And if you're not, ask him why. And he will tell you. Do you want to be happy? Yeah, that comes with Jesus. Father in heaven, what a joy for us this morning to be able to study from this letter of John about being happy. You took a situation that was going to be absolutely disastrous and you made it into an occasion of rejoicing and still we rejoice over it because we too are looking forward to that marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus has taken care of every detail. We praise you this morning that our names are written on the guest list, that our name is written on that little placard where we will be seated. We praise you, Jesus, that we get to watch you take that first sip of fresh juice. Oh, we long to be with you right now. Fill us with your spirit as we continue here at camp meeting. In your name we pray, amen. So I don't know what, this concludes our uh, program. That sort of sounds like a, um, a funeral home director. This concludes this part of the program. Uh, we encourage you to make your way to the back and exit here because I don't think there's another program in here right now and you want to go to that classroom that is most appropriate for you. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Great morning.